We are going to be in the book of Matthew for the next three weeks, um, so four sermons, including Good Friday, and so if you'd turn with me there to the book of Matthew, we're in chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Again, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, you're on page uh, 825. 825. So what we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, uh, this Sunday will be the week before Palm Sunday, the days before Palm Sunday, what was Jesus doing next week, of course, will be the triumphal entry in chapter 21, that on Good Friday we'll look at Christ's passion, his crucifixion, and then on Easter Sunday we'll look at the resurrection. Uh, so we'll just be preaching the gospel the next couple of weeks is simply what we're going to be doing, and as always, trying to apply it to our lives, to bring it home to our consciences that we might live lives that glorify God, that love others, and so forth. Let me read these verses. I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. So uh, chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that These two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The cloud rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Father in heaven, 
your law, your word is amazing. And yet, apart from your spirit touching our eyes, opening our hearts, we will not be able to see. And so, God, we ask now for your spirit to teach us your word, to give us understanding so that we might keep, by your grace, our feet from every evil way to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we, in Matthew's gospel, uh, we see Jesus as king. Uh, early on, as I said, he gives a sermon on a mount. He is high, he is exalted, he is the king teaching from on high. And here, I'm stealing Charles Spurgeon's title from a sermon, The King on the Way to the Cross. We see in verse 17 that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is significant throughout Scripture, and especially so in Matthew's Gospel. In the very beginning, in chapter 3, verse 5, we read that all of Jerusalem was coming out the wilderness to see Jesus. And now at the end of the gospel, Jesus is going to Jerusalem so that all can see him die on a cross. He is going there, as Jesus notes, to die. He doesn't hold back details. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over by the villainous Jewish religious leaders of the Gentiles who will humiliate, torture, and crucify him as a criminal on a cross. He will be murdered. But like a bright star shining in a black midnight sky, he tells us that he will rise on the third day. As Jesus is speaking these words, two of his disciples are concerned, not for the coming suffering and humiliation of their Lord, but for their places of prominence in his kingdom. Their mother, likely by their instigation, asked Jesus to place her sons in positions of the highest prominence in his kingdom at his right and left hand. Now, there's good in this. She has faith in Christ. She has faith that he will rise, that he will reign. She has utter loyalty to him. And yet, of course, she is favoring her own sons, as every mother does. If you ever watch moms at a basketball game, they do cheer for everybody, but especially for their own kids. Now, the rest of the apostles, when they hear this, are beside themselves with indignation. And as I said, this isn't of the righteous variety. They begin to squabble. The Lord is leading his disciples to a place where he will give his life for as many. And along the way, the kids are fighting over their places in the van. <laughs> All right. They're on a way to a funeral. And the kids are going at it in the back seat. The solution Jesus gives to this petty, divisive self-promotion is to call them to himself. Verse 25, and Jesus called them to him. And he is going to teach them how his kingdom works. How prominence in his future glory actually functions and it turns our world on its head. And then as they go along their way, two blind men call out to Jesus to heal them while the disciples are acting like so many spoiled brats. Strangely, two blind beggars have better sight than 12 apostles who have walked with Jesus for three years. 
And so we're meant to learn from two blind men how to see. Let's begin with Jesus foretelling his death. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem, uh, even though where Jesus was, they're actually going south. Everything revolves around Jerusalem, so you'd say you're going up to Jerusalem. He pauses along the way and takes his disciples aside to speak to him. Spurgeon in his sermon on this says, isn't the best communion with Christ when he takes us aside? So Jesus takes them aside to instruct them on why they're going up to Jerusalem. Isn't it the very definition of a Christian to listen to Jesus, to come to him? So Christ comes to them and he comes to us. He sets us apart. He takes us aside for himself. We need this kind of communion with our Lord. We need this kind of communion and fellowship with him and in his sufferings more than we need spring warmth. You and I need Christ as the disciples here need him in preparation for what they're about to endure, which is the murder of their Lord and the terrible fear that will come with it. And so you need it. You need it for financial difficulties you're facing, need it for all areas of your life. So what in your life might be more important than this kind of fellowship with Christ? For James and John, it was their jockeying for position. Right? As Christ is preaching to them the gospel of his death and resurrection, they're worrying about where they'll sit. So what for you takes on more prominence, more heart emotion than the gospel. What is it for you? What draws you away from fellowship with Jesus, with our King, with the sovereign God in heaven? Now, places of prominence aren't unimportant. But when we're face-to-face with the Lord who created us, who is coming to die for us, going to rise from the dead. There should be nothing else crowding in. And so aren't we often like the disciples, rather feeble in our following, fickle? Don't we often treat Christ's church as a club Instead of a blood-bought family, as our Savior goes on the way to his suffering for us. But Jesus is not ashamed of his cross, is he? He's not ashamed of his suffering and humiliation. Look at the details that Christ includes It's difficult because we've heard this so many times to understand the shame of being betrayed by those that you most count on. And Jesus is not ashamed to tell it. What happens when you're betrayed and handed over and mocked is this sense of... um, you must have done something wrong. You must have deserved this. You, 
and you hide these kind of details because you don't want other people to hear of them. You want to keep these in the closet. You don't want others to know of your suffering and humiliation because you don't want them to look down on you too. Jesus is not ashamed of the gospel. He is going to be treated like a thug. It is surprising that we as Christians struggle in the church with conflict. That we think something is wrong when there's conflict. It shows honestly how very little we interact with the Bible. It shows how, how very little we take seriously the lives of the prophets and of the Lord and of the apostles. If you know the Bible at all, you know that those who God holds in highest esteem are often treated the most shamefully. And, and Jesus is not ashamed of the suffering and humiliation of his prophets or his apostles or himself. He is going to be betrayed. He names the place. He names who's going to deliver him. He names who he's going to be delivered over to. He names his condemnation. He names his sentence of death. He names his torture. He names it all. He is not ashamed of his cross. He is not ashamed of his betrayal. Are you? Are you ashamed to name yourself as a Christian in this world? Are you ashamed in your workplace to speak what is truthful and right because you are a Christian? Are you ashamed to suffer the reproach of your co-workers? Of them dismissing you because you follow a crucified and risen God who is eternal, who took on flesh? Are we ashamed of this cross? Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the salvation of his children from beginning to end. Jesus tells us there is nothing in his word that we should ever be ashamed of. Why? Because on the third day he rose. And in Romans 1, we read that the resurrection of the dead was God's declaration that this is my son power I have raised him from the dead and all who follow Christ will one day be raised from the dead and so it matters not the shame and embarrassment and humiliation that we face on this earth for Christ's sake the apostles say it is a good thing to suffer humiliation for following Jesus provided you're not suffering for your own sin too many times you and I suffer and are humiliated for our own sin and we refuse to suffer and Find humiliation for following Jesus. It should be the exact opposite in our lives, brothers and sisters. And so our Lord and Savior is not at all ashamed to speak of the shameful details of his suffering. And while the Lord is glorying in his cross, two of his most intimate intimate friends, two of his most intimate disciples, James and John, are pondering the places of prominence in the future kingdom of our Lord. I mean, really. (laughs) Isn't it striking when you read the Bible how 
this one thing is set right next to another thing, and you can see in stark detail how fallen and awful we can be as humans. And if you can pause for a moment and just put yourself there. Aren't you like this sometimes? Concern for status. Concern that somebody would listen to you and what you have to say. We live under a banner of a crucified and risen Lord and we're so concerned for our own selfish situations. This is the focus of a fallen people, isn't it? You see this in marriage all the time. Husband demanding his rights, wife demanding her wants, siblings squabbling incessantly about their demands, workers gossiping and maligning the boss and Blah, 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 blah. And here, the people that we hold highest in the faith, we see what they're like, and we see us, don't we? That's what Matthew's inviting you into. He's not inviting you to look at James and John and go, oh. He's inviting you to look at James and John and go, oh, that's me. Now, strangely, as I said in our time of confession, there is so much that their mom gets right here. She is really a faithful, godly woman. Um, It is natural for her to consider her sons. She might have too much desire for her boys, but she expresses real and living faith in the Lord Jesus She knows Christ will win. She believes he will be raised from the dead and he will rule in an eternal kingdom. She believes the Bible, what it says in Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man, ruling over all the nations. He believes in all of the prophecies about her Lord that she's hearing from here. She believes it. She pronounces profound loyalty to Jesus. That's what she's doing here. All of the kingdoms on earth, she's siding with Jesus. Right? She's, she's on his team. She's wearing his colors. This is precious. In a world where loyalty is in short supply, this woman should encourage your loyalty to Christ and his people. Christ will win. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He rules. We read in Psalm chapter 2, we had a worship meeting on Thursday night. We read Psalm chapter 2 and we read there that if the nations won't bow to Jesus, he'll take a rod of iron and pound them to dust. And this dear mother's faith is not misplaced. Now, if you had this kind of loyalty and trust in Christ, what would that mean for your Monday? How would that change how you think about situations that come into your life? Aren't we so often forgetting this great hope that we have as believers? We live as if the end of our lives is just a six-foot hole in a worm-riddled wooden box. We as Americans are so short-sighted, 
All we live for is now. That's all we see. We have no thinking of an eternity to come. And I was involved in missions. Uh, I am involved in missions. One of the areas and people I've been involved with in southern Sumatra, Indonesian. And in that area, it's the Lampung people. They're 100% Muslim. There is no known Lampung church or believers. And their symbol, that you, it's like their hodeg. Like in Rhineland, everywhere you see a hodeg. In Lampung, the city of Lampung, all you see are these wooden ships. Just pictures of this wooden ship that's got arches on the above. You see them everywhere. People wear them. It's on houses. It's everywhere. And the symbol is to show them that they will sail on forever into eternity. Their whole foundational view of the world is that this world is very little. It's all about the world to come. And they've kind of syncretized that with their Islamic faith. And we have been told our life is a vapor. We get 60, 70, 80 years. And then we stand before the King of Kings and give an account. Those who have faith will go on to live with him forever. Those who don't will suffer eternally away from the presence of the Lord in hell. And we don't think about that at all. We do not think about giving judgment before this King of Kings for every idle word that we've spoken. And this dear woman sees that there is a kingdom to come while her sons and disciples squabble about this life is training ground for that life. And we don't even consider that there's another one to come. But why did Jesus come and die? What did he do that for? Why did he come and tell the apostles, we're going to Jerusalem. At another place it says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Why did he do it? Did he die and rise so you can have your best life now? Did he die and rise so that you can have everything you want today? Didn't he die and rise to secure your eternal future in a kingdom on earth to reign? Why are you so concerned about your stomachs? Why are you so concerned with what you wear? Why are you so concerned about how much money you're going to make? Why are you so concerned about what people say about you? There is a king coming in an eternal kingdom where you'll live forever. Get over yourself. Look to Christ who endured the cross. That's what Jesus is telling us here. He is trying to prepare the disciples to live lives of fellowship with his sufferings. One of the themes begins actually back in Matthew 19 is this idea of many who want to be first will be blessed, but those who are content to stoop low and humble service others will be first in Christ's kingdom. And of course, of course Jesus Christ himself is the uh, ideal of this. You can't sit on a throne next to him unless you're willing to hang on a cross. That's what's going on here. 
You'll never be anything in Christ's kingdom if you're unwilling to be nothing. You'll never attain to the resurrection of the dead if you aren't content to fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We always want glory without suffering. We want places of ease and prominence without paying a cross, a cost. We want to be Christians. We want all the benefits of Christ without actually following Christ. We want cheap and easy grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for trying to defend Christ's people by assassinating Hitler. And after the Germans lost and Hitler was dead, on Hitler's command, he was executed. That man knew something about cheap grace. That man knew something about believers who want lives of ease and and comfort now and want to forego the suffering of following in our Savior. And so why would we ever do this? Why would I exhort you like this? Why is it good to be despised for Christ? Because Christ is worth it. That's why. There is no other reason for you to follow in Christ's footsteps and take the insults, take the backbiting, take the marginalization, except that Jesus is worth it. That's it. There's no other reason. There's no shortcut either. Paul says in Philippians 3 that every worldly, fleshly advantage he counts as rubbish, that he would suffer anything only for one reason, to know Jesus Christ and his suffering. He said, I would rather be dead and be with Jesus. He would suffer any amount of ignominy, of shame, of being despised because of one thing, that he contained the resurrection of the dead and be with the Lord Jesus forever. Jesus tells us in Mark 8.38 that we cannot be his followers and be ashamed of any of his words. He says if we are ashamed of him and his words in this sinful and adulterous world, then when he comes, he will be ashamed of us. So you see the choice for us as believers We either suffer shame with Jesus from the world and receive commendation from Jesus. Or we avoid shame here and now and suffer the shame of being ashamed by the Lord who comes. That's our only choice as believers. That's it. And the history of God's people, those that we think highly of, is a history of them suffering great embarrassment and shame for following Jesus Christ. These are people that we hold high in estimation. And so where are you tempted to be ashamed? Are you tempted to be ashamed of having lots of children? Go to Walmart with five kids. And people will say constantly to you, oh, you got your hands full. I don't know how you do it. You know what they're doing there? 
They want you to be ashamed of having a lot of kids. Maybe you're ashamed of remaining at home and keeping your home because you really want a career and wealth. Maybe you're embarrassed to discipline your children in faithful obedience to Jesus. Maybe you're ashamed that in Genesis 1 it actually says that God created the world in six days. And you don't want to suffer the embarrassment of that. Maybe you're ashamed of being sexually pure in your school because you love Jesus. Maybe you're embarrassed to admit that you give a lot of your finances to fund missionaries who go to places to tell the gospel and suffer greatly for telling people who have never heard the gospel. Maybe you're ashamed of standing firm and shouting out loud that women killing their unborn children and men encouraging it is actually murder. There are all kinds of places we can be pressured. Maybe you're ashamed to be a part of a church that preaches truth. It's hard to be a Christian today. It's not hard to be a Christian in here today. The world is okay with you being a Christian so long as you keep it in your head and in your heart. You can be a Christian all day long so long as you keep Jesus in your heart. You let Jesus come out of your lips. You let standing for truth come out of your lips. You let it come out in your actions. And you will suffer. And the solution to this kind of squabbling, this stuff that the disciples do, they begin to argue, they're indignant. Instead of aiming to suffer for Christ and the service of Christ's people, they aim to be great. And so they fight. James, the, uh, James, the brother of our, half-brother of our Lord Jesus says that the source of all contention and infighting and malicious slander and gossip is that we want something we can't have it. he's pressing on our hearts. The reason that we fight with our words, the reason that siblings fight with their words, the reason that church people fight with their words because they have something, they can't get it. They want something, they can't get it. And so what does Jesus do to heal this division and infighting among the disciples? What does he do? Look at verse 25. Jesus called them to him. That's it. He just called them to him. And then he taught them. But Jesus called them to himself. The solution for petty rivalries, marital warfare, church gossip, all of it is to draw near to Jesus Christ. Because when you draw near to Christ, you're, you stop looking for your own. Right? You stop, you stop getting off of what do I want. Because you're concerned about glorifying Christ and serving Christ's people. But if it's about you, like the disciples, if it's about them, then you'll be a royal difficulty for others around you, especially those in leadership. If you're a citizen of Rhinelander and it's all about you, you'll make our mayor, Chris Fredrickson's job, a royal difficulty. You'll make a police person's job a great difficulty. If you as a child 
are constantly squabbling for your own, you're going to make your dad's and mom's life very difficult. And we read in Hebrews 13 that we are to make our leaders' jobs, he's talking about church leaders, our elders, easy and good by obeying and submitting to them because it's not about us. The solution for all squabbling is Christ. And Jesus teaches them how to think about this. It shall not be so among you. Again, Jesus doesn't dance around, does he? He doesn't nuance here. He looks at his disciples. You can imagine this conversation was very uncomfortable. He just told them he's going to suffer and die. And he sits them down. He looks them in the eyes and says, No. It shouldn't be among you. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be a slave. I came, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, the great and glorious ruler of all the earth, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Not you. As so many parents have said, just stop it. Let's knock it off. And we should ask ourselves, what does Jesus mean here? What does it mean not to be served but to serve? What does it mean not to try to be first but to be last? Well, just look at what Jesus does in the, chap- in the, in the verses around this. Go back to verse 19. Part of this means teaching on marriage. In Matthew 19, he's asked the question about marriage and divorce, and he quotes from Genesis 2, what we just preached on, and he tells them that the only reason for divorce in this world is your hardness of heart. Apparently, that's what it looks like to serve. In chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, he defends children. The children try to come to him, and the disciples want to keep the kids away, and Jesus rebukes the people. Well, I'm sorry, in this one, it's the disciples doing this. He, he wants the children to come. So he loves kids. That's one way you can serve others and not be served. Be about the next generation. Care for kids. Then Jesus rebukes a rich young man. Listen, have you ever been somebody, around somebody who's really wealthy? You know how intimidating that is? The last people on the world and the earth that you rebuke is somebody who's rich. Because rich people don't take rebuking well because they think really highly of themselves. And what, what it means to serve and not be served is to not withhold loving rebuke from a rich guy. <laughs> this is what it means to serve and not be served. Is that a part of your definition? See, sometimes what we want to do is take this serve and not be served, and, and then not look in the Bible what that actually looks like. But rebuking is a big part of it, apparently. And we could go on and on and on. So what I'm just saying, I want to exhort you, let the Bible define it. The Bible is just packed with what it looks like to serve and not be served. And the two held us up in, in, in highest prominence are two blind beggars. So one of the things you have to do when you're reading the Bible is ask, why is this there? Where does this seemingly disconnected 
blind beggars pleading for Jesus' help, what does that have to do with Jesus' teaching on his death and resurrection and with his rebuking the disciples for their arrogance and infighting? Why is that there? It just comes out of nowhere. Well, it's there to teach us on how to relate to Christ. It's there to teach us that if you're ever going to serve and not be served, you've got to begin here. The disciples cry out for places of prominence, and blind men cry out for mercy. Right? The blind men couldn't see a thing physically, but they could see clearly who Jesus is and what his power could do for them. <laughs> the disciples couldn't see any of it. They cry out, people tell them to shut up, they cry out all the more, and Jesus listens. Look at what Jesus does. Two blind men cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. The crowd rebukes them, tell them to be silent. They cry out all the more. And in verse 32, what does Jesus do? He stops. He stops. What does Jesus do for you? What does God in heaven do for you when you're crying out to him? Right? Jesus is God. He's teaching you what your heavenly father is like here. When you're crying out in need, in sorrow, in sin or whatever, when you're crying out, what does God do? He stops and listens. He takes ear to the pleas of his people. These blind men are teaching us how to see. <laughs> These blind men are teaching you how to live. These blind men are teaching you more about God than the followers of God are teaching us here. Oh, how we need to listen more to poor, pitiful people in this world. If you believe that God was like this, how much more would you pray? Isn't the fact that you don't pray as you ought evidence that you don't believe God is who he says he is? Nobody asks a wicked father for anything because they know he's wicked and won't give them what they're asking. But if you have a father who's good and wise, there isn't anything you won't ask him for. And we have a father who is good and wise and merciful and stops to listen. Jesus takes pity on them. Again, our God is a God of great compassion and mercy and pity for us. And if that's true, we don't have to get our own, do we? If you know you have God's ear, you don't have to fight so hard to get your own. You can trust him. So those of you who can see Christ by faith, who have spiritual life, um, this is what we should do, cry out. Now look at these guys can do nothing for themselves, can they? They're totally unable. There is nobody who can do anything for their condition except God. And God heals them. Christ heals them. He touched their eyes and gives them sight. And so we should always remember whatever we have is only from God. This, this puts an end to all of our bragging and boasting. We only have that which 
God has given us. If you understand the Bible at all, it's only because God has given you understanding. If you have had any success in serving people in the church, it's only because God has graciously given you that privilege. If you have health, it's only a gift of God. If you have ill health, it's only a gift of God. We only have that which is pleasing from our Father to give us. Now, if you are spiritually blind, if you're one who continues to reject the gospel, if your soul is dark, if you see no glory, no beauty, nothing to attract you to Jesus, if this past week you had no time for God and his son, I would urge you, I plead with you to realize your situation, you are as blind as these two men. The Bible tells us that from birth, this is what we are like spiritually. We're blind. We cannot see God because of sin, because of our inclination internally to be opposed to him. We just can't see the truth. We're blind to it. In fact, the Bible says more we're dead internally, spiritually. We have no life in us. We need God. He commands all everywhere to turn from their evil, from living life on their own terms, and turn to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, and plead with him for mercy. The only thing that you bring to the gospel is blindness. And God is the great optometrist. He alone can give sight to the blind, life to the dead. And so why wouldn't you do that this very moment? Why wouldn't you look at God's son and say, have mercy on me. I'm blind. Open my eyes that I might see. Take out this heart that's dead to you and implant a living, alive heart. You need Christ. And so turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we do need your mercy. Thank you for it. Thank you that you're this kind of a God. Pray that we receive this teaching as if it's coming from you, because it's your words, that it be applied by your spirit as we need it, and that we would humbly receive it and live it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Remember that we do have a Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He actually paid the penalty for all of our sins. We are free to live unto God, free from the burden and debt of our sin because the Son of God has ransomed us. And so the charge is, I want you to know that and remember it. And I really want you to invite somebody to come hear it on Easter. They might be free. May God bless you. May God keep you. May God make his glorious face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his countenance shining in his sun upon you and give you peace, his peace. And amen.